Hi, Jim Kosho here from Dunn Lumber. Welcome to today's Dunn Solutions Podcast. We're dedicated to giving our customers access not only to the highest quality materials, but also to cutting edge industry knowledge. Today, we'll hear from Brian Horseman with James Hardy Building Products. Brian grew up around remodeling and has been in the industry for over 19 years. He has spent the last five of those sharing best practices for installing fiber cement siding. In this podcast, he'll be focusing on today's modern design look using Hardy Panel and also the Hardy Reveal Panel product. Brian will also cover the following. How does this design choice change the building envelope? How do we navigate the different profiles of metal trim? And what are the keys to a quality modern design installation? If you have additional questions about James Hardy building products, please go to jameshardy.com. And to attend a future product information breakfast, you can email me at jimc at dunlumber.com. Well, I appreciate the time. I'm going to pace back and forth here a little bit so that I can get the, uh, the sound going uh, and make sure that everyone can hear me. So if you don't hear, give me a hand, wave, or a raise. I apologize for those of you in the front row that are going to get yelled at and maybe a little bit uh, spit on. So uh, thanks, Jim. I appreciate the intro. As Jim mentioned, the packet is kind of three parts. So the first part is the, the presentation that we'll be going through today. The second portion is about three pages of questions and answers. I tried to categorize them, so you'll notice there was a bunch of questions that kind of all related to ground contact. So you'll see some answers around ground contact, answers around costing, answers around, um, sorry about that, lost my page there. <laughs> uh, questions around uh, butt joint installation, what do I do when two laps come together? So I tried to answer as many of those questions as I could so that, again, you, you had those references. If you don't feel like you got a complete answer or you feel like you need a little more clarity, don't hesitate to ask. So obviously I'm here. We've got a couple other Hardy guys here, Johan and John Harrison, as well as a couple of our distribution partners in, uh, in uh, Wes and in Jim Bickler. So please ask questions if you have any. And then the last page that you'll see in the packet is our contact information for the Hardy guys within the, uh, the Western Washington geography. So, and you'll notice uh, there's a lot of bodies. There's, there's eight of us now in the Western Washington district. Uh, this marketplace for James Hardy is, depending on the year, the second or third largest market for James Hardy. So it's a very important market, and a lot of it's due to those of you in the room here today, uh, the longevity of your usage of our product, and, and the performance of, of how these homes and these buildings look is a testament to, uh, to some of the things that you guys have done. So we appreciate you guys coming out, listening to our, uh, our presentation. Um, the main focus today is gonna be around kind of the modern design, right? Uh, you drive around the Seattle area, even now it's creeping into the east side and you see more and more and more modern, what we call modern boxes, right? These parapet walls, no overhangs, and that kind of takes us into the bottom of the first page here, slide two. So the question is, how did we get here? If I go to Queen Anne right now, I can see a 1900 Craftsman, and I could drive a block away, and I can see this modern box that's three stories high with all panel. How did we get here? What do you think? Who's got a reason or a, or a, or a, a rationalization of why we've gone from this creative, artistic, labor-intensive process in creating a Craftsman to this some might call it austere, stark, plain, modern box. What do you think? Scarcity of natural materials. Okay. 
I think that's a good possibility, right? We've seen a, a degradation in, uh, in lumber products over the years in terms of quality of cedar, for example. So if you want a heavy-duty cedar lap, uh, you can buy it, you can put it on the wall, but there's a good chance you're going to be back out there in six months, I've even seen, where it has so much moisture content that it won't hold paint. So, so scarcity of resources, what else? It's easier for architects to draw. Easier for architects. They're, they're probably architects, so I'm not going to comment on that, but I do think you, you, you do have a point from an, an ease of replication. It is an easier exterior potentially to replicate, right? Um, that, that's a good part of it. What else? Square footage. You said that. Square footage. I think square footage is a, is a big piece of it. So if you think about the natural footprint and the layout of the Seattle uh, metropolitan geography, small lots, right? We have an influx of uh, more affluent individuals, primarily driven in a blue collar, moving from a blue collar to a white collar society. They want bigger, they want more, but we can't change the boundary lines of that 4,000 square foot lot. So the only way we can maximize that footage, we have to go vertical, right? So we're pushing up. What's the other advantage when we go vertical? Views. It's exactly right. I'm standing here. We got a bridge above us. We got a hill to the right. We got territory views. We've got mountain views. We've got sound views, space needle views. Any realtors in the, in the, in the audience today? If you ever look at uh, the options, if you're going to look at a new house tomorrow, you go to Redfin, you go to any kind of um, real estate agency, there's boxes. I want a territorial view. I want a space needle view. I want you have all these options. Imagine you're in Chicago. I grew up in Chicago. Every time I land in Chicago, what do I see? Flat. There's no advantage for moving up. Here, tremendous advantage for moving up. So you think about the small lot that's very expensive because we're landlocked, right? We all drove here in, in no traffic. We're all going to leave here in a lot of traffic. So we have small lots. We need to capture views. And as those costs of land increase, our only option is we have to build bigger to maximize our investment on that piece of property. Any other reasons? I mean, I think that basically, from what I've seen over the last six years of kind of watching this trend continue to develop, those are kind of the reasons. And I talk to guys like you and, and gals like you and architects and, and designers and homeowners, those seem to be the driving factors. So as this changes, what do we see, right? We see a craftsman home with potentially a, a shingle detail. We see a heavy lap aesthetic. And we see those transforming into this modern panelized solution. So as, as a lot of trends occur, right, there becomes this pendulum swing. So we go from a really high intensive craftsman aesthetic and we've swung this massive pendulum to this modern box. So if you're, again, you drive through Queen Anne, you drive through uh, Ballard specifically. I live in Ballard. There's a lot of infill construction that's occurring with this panelized aesthetic. And uh, a lot of it's driven by uh, need for housing and things of those nature. But as you look at those aesthetics, um, it doesn't lend itself to a lot of Northwest friendly, uh, long-term, low maintenance solutions, right? We have flat walls with parapets and flat roofs. We did that in the 80s. Remember that? How many cranes do we see when we look outside? 
how many envelope consultants have businesses in this geography that are replacing cladding like EFIS, that are replacing wood, vinyl, fiber cement even, because of the lack of knowledge around the envelope and how the moisture, how this climate affects what's going to happen to that wall assembly. So as I look around and I look at the design and I see the evolution of the design, in the Seattle metropolitan neighborhoods, right? So the Queen Anne's, the Ballard's, the Fremont's, you look around these geographies, and a lot of what we see is modern parapet wall construction, flat roofs. Um, as we look across to our friends across the lake, what are we seeing over there? We're seeing an incorporation of a sloped or a tilted roof. Now, I don't know who said it. I've heard people refer to it as different names, but there's kind of this movement towards what, what people are referring to as a modern craftsman. Uh, I think it's kind of an odd juxtaposition of two words, modern and craftsman. But as you look at it and you look at the trends, outside of the small lots in the Seattle neighborhoods, we're seeing a transition into not as austere an exterior. We've got these butterfly roofs. Has anyone heard that term before? Right? We're seeing these different sloped roofs where instead of having a traditional uh, peaked or pitched roof, we now have one angle and potentially a, sep a secondary angle. Um, we're seeing an incorporation of additional claddings, right? So again, in Seattle, you look at the picture on the second page, you see all modern panel, right? As you turn to the next page, you see kind of this movement towards a mix of different claddings. So we see some panel on these projects. We see some lap on these projects. We see some other flat wall products, whether it's cedar, uh, whether it's a, a, a V-rustic aesthetic, right? So something that, that gives you a flat look and doesn't have as much of an angle to the wall. So I think over time, as we continue to monitor and we, we watch what's occurring, the design epicenter occurred in Seattle, right? You see the modern box here, and as it radiates out, and it's moving pretty far, uh, there, are, there are production builders in Marysville that, are, that have lots and land, and they're developing an aesthetic that looks very similar to the modern box. So if I told you two years ago in Marysville, someone's gonna build a modern box like you see in downtown uh, Seattle, you would say you're crazy. It's going to Marysville. We have uh, production builders, again, production builders. So when it migrates from you guys, from a remodel uh, design community, and it makes its way all the way into the production end of the business, there's no question it's been fully adopted and it's moving at a very fast pace. So three years ago, I did a, a, a study. I looked at every single start within the major Seattle neighborhoods and the major east side neighborhoods. And there was 527 of these starts. And I drove 527 jobs to understand what does the exterior of these projects look like. So three years ago, it was 67% of all of the Seattle geographies had a modern aesthetic solution. When you went to the east side, the Bellevues and the Kirklands, all the way from Renton to, uh, I think the furthest I went would have been uh, the edge of Kirkland, there were, uh, out of the 527 from a percentage standpoint, 
obviously less occurring on the east side, but 32% of what was going on in Bellevue and Kirkland was a modern design. They still wanted traditional, classic, you know, classic Seattle lapped home. We've done that review again. We've looked at it again. And the trend has gone up in modern in both marketplaces. So we're over 72% now in modern design in Seattle, and we're almost 41% now on the east side. So I talk to people all the time uh, that say, I hate it, I love it. Whether we hate it or love it, it's not going away. So the question is, is how do we adapt to it? And I think this concept of the modern craftsman, these kinds of images that you see on the second page at the upper top, this is the direction that I think makes the most sense. Now, I'm not an architect. Um, I'm not the leading designer in the market. I, I'm not deciding on the trends. I'm just reporting on what I see from an exterior standpoint. And more and more, we're seeing the integration of uh, sloped roofs and the integration of not just a singular entity, not just the look of a, of a flat panelized solution, something like this, but we're seeing the incorporation of some of those older elements, uh, i.e. lap and other flat wall products that would have been on the wall 100 years ago. Any questions about the trend? Any questions or disagreements? Perfect. OK, yes? Starts? Starts, yeah. So we looked at the permit data, how many homes within one year were uh, requested a permit. Now, again, I realize a permit to an actual uh, home, there is a disconnect there. But again, directionally speaking, just looking at how many people permitted, looking at those homes over the course of a year, how many looked modern and how many looked traditional. So the question is now, uh, we're moving towards this different aesthetic. How does it change the envelope? How does it affect what we put on the wall? How does it affect what we design from an envelope you know, to protect our homes? So the first thing that you'll see, and I, I apologize it's small, but on the bottom, and I'll show you a demonstration, but on the bottom of the second page is, is kind of the understanding of the change in the, uh, the envelope of, uh, from a, a traditional style home to as we move to our modern style. So imagine this is my, my example. This is my lap siding on my wall, right? It's going to have a little bit of a tilt back rake to it. This is a pretty traditional aesthetic. We've seen it all over the place, and it's a very predominant solution within this geography of the Northwest. The reason it's, a, it's been a successful solution is it, to some extent, creates, it creates its own air gap, right? So everybody can see there's an air gap between there. Right? That natural rake of the wall allows moisture to exit the wall if by chance it happens to get in. It allows the wall assembly to dry over time. It gives the water a place to go. This is a proven product, uh, a proven installation methodology. I don't need to go and engineer and do a bunch of testing to see if it works. I can drive up into Queen Anne right now and see homes 100 years old that have this on it and have no problems from an envelope uh, standpoint. Now that assumes that there's been maintenance. You don't paint the wood that's 100 years old. You potentially have some problems. But the concept of this as a wall assembly has worked out and has been very successful and well proven. Now, we've gone from this to that. That creates a bit of a problem, right? 
Where does that moisture now go? When that wall is saturated through November, December, January, and February, and doesn't dry out until we get into the spring, where does the moisture go? Back into the wall. Right? So uh, is anybody an attorney in the room? There are a tremendous number of litigations going on due to envelope construction. And a lot of them are driven by flat wall type solutions. So if you take a flat wall product like Hardy Panel, this isn't Hardy Panel, but for example's sake, flat wall product, and you put it flat to a, uh, uh, the shear of the wall, even with a WRB in there, there is a potential chance that that wall can't dry. There's a potential chance that any intrusions, Mrs. Smith, Mr. Jones, they don't maintain their caulking, moisture gets into the wall in between the cladding, what's gonna happen? It could potentially create uh, rod issues on the structure. So panels, the concept of a flat wall panel, uh, wasn't something that would have been necessarily a traditional aesthetic within this marketplace. If you go down to our friends in San Francisco, they had more of a flat wall product. But in this marketplace, our, our architecture was heavily dominated with lab. So now, what do we have to change when we design our envelope? We have to change our envelope. We have to change the way we're designing the ability for this product, for that wall to drain, to dry, and to not rot away so that we don't end up in litigation. So as we look at top of the next page, our friend Moisture. It's glorious out today. It was awesome yesterday. The rain is coming. It's November and it gets wet. So when you think about moisture and you think about it in terms of moisture entering or affecting the wall envelope, there's two major things to look at. The first part of that, uh, that slide on the top is bulk water entry. That's wetting. That's water getting into the wall assembly. That's water uh, wetting and saturating the wall assembly. And then on the bottom piece, the second part of that slide, you see the whole concept and process around drying, okay? So why is this important? Well, again, we know moisture is gonna get in or has the capability to get into our wall assembly with wind-driven rain. It's supposed to be 45 miles an hour, somebody was saying earlier today, the, 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 the rain, or the, the wind, if it rains, we have wind-driven rain. Now we don't have the same type of wind-driven rain as they do actually in Houston. That may seem odd, but in Houston, they have more wind-driven rain. In Seattle, we have, we have rain, lighter rain, but we still have the, the ability for it to become wind-driven rain. If you're in certain geographies, if you're on the edge of uh, the, edge of the sound, um, you're, you're, we, we deal with a lot of, obviously, topography uh, obstacles, i.e., the different mountains and peaks that we have, that affects the way that the air moves and can affect our ability to have more wind-driven rain. So we've got issues with wind-driven rain, right? We've got issues with gravity. Any moisture that gets in the wall, gravity is gonna pull it down. So we need to give it a space, an opportunity for it to move down the wall. We need to be cognizant of the capillary action. We've all taken a straw when we were a kid, we put it in our water glass, we covered the top, and we poked it up, and what happened? It sucked up the water into the straw and we're able to hold it. Capillary action, it'll suck the water up the wall, right? Uh, and then the last piece is absorption. We get consistent days of wet, 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 and wet. And if the exterior cladding product becomes wet and it, and it becomes uh, and saturated, it can move its way through to the wall assembly. And now, again, 
Where's that moisture going to go? So we've got the whole concept of moisture getting in or wetting the wall assembly. And then we have the idea of, OK, the rain stopped, like today. How are we going to dry that moisture out? Well, we all know, because we obviously live within this geography. Uh, even today, when it's not wet, it's still damp. We have 80 degrees almost, 80% average humidity every morning. It's very, very hard for the wall assemblies to dry. So we have to think about drainage. We have to allow for that uh, wetting to subside and for moisture to be able to drain. We have to allow for water vapor as it does warm up for the venting of all of that moisture to exit through the top. And then we need to think about diffusion, right? So as those things start to, start to dry out, water moves to the lowest gradient. It moves away from the saturation, which could be to the exterior of the wall or to the interior of the wall. So as we take account for the wetting of the wall and how the wall dries, that moves us into what? The idea of a rain screen. I say rain screen. Some people say yay. Some people say nay. Some people are agitated about it. Some people think it's the only way we should be building. Um, like it or dislike it, it is a proven building science. There are specific geographies uh, in North America that have requirements where rain screens are an automatic, uh, no questions you must have. Our friends to the north in BC, Vancouver, they require a rain screen. They require rain screens on single family homes, multifamily homes, buildings, uh, what's it, uh, Tim Hortons, donut shops, everything. Everything requires a rain screen. Our friends to the south in Oregon, they have what's called a drainage plane type of requirement. So they require a minimum of an, of an eighth of an inch of space. Now, we're sandwiched right between. I don't think we're that much different from Vancouver. I don't think we're that much different than Portland. Maybe a little bit cooler and a little bit wetter. So it kind of stands to reason that if our partners to the north and the south are seeing value and proposing and turning these into code requirements, that it's only a matter of time before it makes its way into this type of a market. Now, as we think about what is a rain screen, on the bottom of this slide, I kind of put together a basic concept. So when you think about a rain screen, there's really three major components in concept, right? So you have whatever your cladding is. So again, we'll go back to this idea. It's just basically a, a flat wall type product. Uh, you have your airspace. So the gap between your, your wall and, uh, and your wall assembly. And then you have your actual uh, drainage plane. That would be your WRB. So to give you an example, I apologize if it's hard to see. This is an example of uh, kind of a standard rain screen assembly that you'd see, right? So we've got our cladding on the top. We've got our, we've got our uh, ability to create an airspace. And then it's hard to see in there, but there is a WRB, so a weather resistant barrier that's in there. This concept, those three pieces, are the basic concept of a rain screen. Any questions about that concept? I know this is probably nothing new. Uh, all of you guys, gals in this room, are in the construction industry. This is not the first time somebody's got up and had a discussion around rain screens. Any questions about it? Yes? That's an excellent question that takes us to the next slide. So if you turn to the next page, at the top of uh, 
<laughs> at the top of that page, you'll see kind of an image or a couple of images there of what is the common Seattle rain screen. Now, I will, uh, for, 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 my, uh, for the James Hardy legal attorneys that might be listening, uh, this is not James Hardy's recommendation. This is me as a cladding expert, I guess, uh, giving, you, uh, giving you the information of what we see in the market. So if I was James Hardy, and I said, hey, this is what James Hardy would, would like to see, would recommend that you do. Our only recommendation is a 3 8 inch air gap. That's it. Hardy says, we'd like to see, if you're using a flat wall product, 3 8 inch of air between the back of our product and whatever you're using as your WRB. That's it. It's that simple. Uh, what we typically see and again, it's not driven by Hardy's recommendation, but, but what we typically see in the market is 3 8 inch plywood product that's used as furrings. So there's a lot of different products in the marketplace. Uh, there's PVC type products, there's metal products, there's all kinds of different options. The most common one we see is 3 8 inch, 3 8 inch plywood. Uh, you can buy it already ripped down, you can buy a sheet and rip it yourself. Um, as I mentioned, there's other products like Eldorado Battens, maybe people have heard about. It's a PVC piece. Uh, the reason wood makes the most sense is because wood attached to the studs creates a continuous extension of the structure of the building. So imagine if I have my stud and I have my shear panel on the exterior, wood, wood, and I put another piece of wood on it. If I can attach all of those together, that becomes a structural integrity to the actual structure itself. So now when I put my cladding on, I'm actually tying it back to the structure of the building. If I put a piece of PVC on it, the PVC doesn't have structural integrity. So the reason we see wood, which is kind of counterintuitive, right? I got an open space where I know I'm gonna have water and I'm gonna put wood in there. But again, remember, majority of the water is moving in, in the wetting and drying process vertically and horizontally. That's where the bulk of the water is moving. So. Typical rain screen in Seattle, 3 8 inch gap, uh, wood product, usually plywood, attached directly to the studs. That is the most common thing that we see in the market. Now that leads to the question of well, what, do you do for, uh, what do you do for a WRB? What, what kind of, what kind of uh, vapor barrier or weather resistant barrier do you recommend? Again, Hardy doesn't have a specific recommendation. Um, we do believe and we do recommend and require what's considered a closed rain screen. Okay, so we've talked about this idea of a rain screen. That's creating an air gap and letting water move up and down as the wall dries or moisture enters the assembly. The next thing to think about is, is it open or closed, right? So some people ask questions about, hey, I want to do an open jointed rain screen. So what's an open jointed rain screen? That's when you take two panels and you leave a space between them. Doesn't matter if it's an eighth of an inch, three eighths of an inch, three feet. But imagine that there's nothing in between these things aside from my vapor barrier. I'm the vapor barrier, and these are, these are my gaps. That's an open rain screen. So the concerns with open rain screens in general is debris, moisture, wind. Everything is going direct to your WRB, your weather barrier. So you need to be sure that whatever that weather barrier is, uh, it needs to be UV uh, resistant. There is no such thing as... Uh, impervious to UV. Everything's going to degrade over time. So it needs to be UV resistant. That's a more expensive solution, right? It allows for moisture to enter in all the way to the last resort, 
right? So if you think about a wall assembly, your first resort is your WRB and your second resort is your cladding. If you space your cladding apart and you let moisture get right in, you're, you're basically allowing it to get past one of your defenses. So effectively, if you have an open joint and rain screen, that WRB, that vapor barrier, that's the only thing protecting your structure. Now, it might be shedding off 80% of the moisture, meaning 80% of the moisture is hitting a panel and, and you have small pockets around it, but that's still 20% of the moisture you're allowing into the wall cavity. So our recommendation is what's considered a closed rain screen. That means moisture is not intended to enter in, but if it gets in there, it can exit. That's the concept behind it. Now, along with that, what we typically see is a vented and ventilated. So if you put it all together, it's a closed jointed vented and ventilated rain screen. That is the preferred, not just my concept, not just James Hardy's concept. That's uh, building science. There's three or four guys in the US that are the, uh, the, the PhDs and, uh, and the uh, propeller heads that have done the testing and the studies. And that is the concept that drives the most protection for you. Now, ventilated and venting. That means the bottom of the rain screen has the capability for nothing to inhibit moisture from falling out of it. So the recommendation would be a, a, a bug screen of sort to not let insects and pests into the cavity. It's kind of hard to see, but if you look at that top of uh, page four, you'll see that, that kind of dark colored piece there. That's actually a bug screen. So it's small perforated holes that doesn't allow anything to enter into the bottom of the rain screen. Like this. This one just happens to be white. But that way, any moisture that goes into that wall assembly has a place to exit, right? I don't have open so that insects and bugs can get in, but I have something that's stopping bees, mice, bugs, whatever wants to get into the wall assembly. Now, imagine if I had a parapet wall. I would do the exact same thing. I just invert it. So I have now a ventilated rain screen. I have the bug screen on the top. It's doing the exact same function. Any moisture that gets in that wall that turns to water vapor and that exits up, it now has a place to exit. It doesn't run into open air that bugs and animals and things can get into. So ventilated, top and bottom, closed where the, basically the metals and or other products are not allowing the, the, the moisture to automatically enter the wall assembly. Question? Are those available in a 3-8 They are, yes. Uh, there are a number of products in the market um, from pre-made pieces like this. This is actually a Tamlin piece. So Tamlin, you'll see on the questions and answer, tamlin.com. Uh, Dunn Lumber carries a lot of these products. Tamlin is, would be one option. So it is a, it's a PVC-based product. Um, other things that we see are, uh, there are uh, meshes. So imagine like a roll of a, of a, like a chicken fencing type of material that you can also bend and flex if you had to. So two different ways to do it, depending on ease and depending on your, your, your wall assembly. Yes? So I'm seeing what looks like half-inch material there. But is that yeah. what the we'll, we'll get to this in a minute, because you're right. This is, this, is a different, this is a different product that you're seeing there. Five sixteenths. Yep. So uh, furrings need to be on every stud, right? 
Uh, so you're basically attaching every 16 inches on a normal wood frame structure. Um, you don't see a lot of flexing in Boeing. Now, if I have an eight, uh, 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 3 8 inch air gap and I'm suspending it and I took my Schwinn bike and rode as fast as I can and I threw it right in the middle of the panel, there is a chance that you could crack the panel. That is a possibility. If I took a baseball and I had my nine-year-old throw it as fast as he could, maybe he could crack it if he hits it right in the center. Now, we don't see a lot of that. There are some ciders in the room so that, you know, it'd be good to maybe connect some of those guys and get their opinion. But we don't get a lot of phone calls or people saying, hey, I put up a hardy panel and somebody punched the middle of the wall and it cracked. Is, is that conducive? Do you see a lot of that, Bo? So, um, so, but it is a possibility, right? There, there's no question from a, from a rigidity and a strength standpoint, a 516 product suspended on 16 inches on center could crack in the middle. Yes? What about uh, 24 inch on center advanced framing? 24 inch on center advanced framing. So we have a, a document called our NER405. And our NER405 talks about fastening patterns. You could do an installation 24 inches on center. So it's not as common. You can do it. You typically have to change your fastener type. So the most common fasteners that we see in the Seattle market using panel, we see a lot of people nailing that product up. Uh, you can use uh, metal fasteners or, or uh, like a bugle-headed screw, things of that nature. But if you want to move to a 24-inch fastening pattern, all of our hardy products, all, yes, all, I think, all of our products would allow for a 24-inch installation, but you would have to change your fastener. So, so you can look in, uh, go to jameshardy.com or look for our NER405. That will show you the wind loads and your fastener pattern for any Hardy products. Other questions on, on the concept? Yeah. So, so the question is around, um, there's obviously a cost involved with adding a rain screen assembly, right? And it's not a small cost. So you think about the amount of material that you're putting up, even though it's plywood, there's a lot of them, right? Uh, you think about the time on the wall, so getting up on a pump jack, you know, installing all of this wood. Uh, then you think about uh, the amount of time and energy that goes into it. A rain screen is not a very inexpensive solution. It adds a significant cost to the wall assembly. So the question is, is what about alternatives to this 3 8 inch wood furring concept? Can I use a um, raindrop is a common product that we see? Or can I use Tyvek stucco wrap? Can I use a product that is called a drainage plane or a drain wrap that has some topography to it? So if you looked at a regular WRB or you looked at a piece of felt paper, Jumbo Tech, something like that, uh, very flat. It doesn't allow any kind of space. There are products on the market called drainage wraps. And drainage wraps would be what Hardy considers a better solution. So we would say a good solution is a, is a standard WRB, a standard flat wrap. A better solution would be a drainage plane, or I'm sorry, drainage uh, wrap type product. The best solution is, is a wood construction. And the reason we say that is there's a bunch of products out there. And while we do see compression, putting a flat big panel and nailing it to something that has very small ridges, um, that doesn't inhibit or doesn't 
eliminate the potential that another product or maybe somebody else's product would perform a little bit better. So we say good, better, best. At minimum, you need to have a, uh, a flat rain barrier. Better would be a drainage wrap, but we really recommend a 3 8 inch gap. Yes? Uh, doing a half inch instead of three. So your, your question is, can I make the rain screen thicker? Yeah, they come in like three Yes. So, so no, no. Uh, we see a number, and this kind of goes back to the other question earlier, which was, does it have to be three-eighths? Uh, it looks like you've got something that's three-quarters. Can you increase the depth of that rain screen? The answer would be yes. The studies show that three-eighths is kind of the minimum requirement to maximize the, wine, the wetting and drying process of the wall assembly. So you could, be, you could use smaller thicknesses of, of strips. You could use thicker pieces of uh, furring. It really is uh, kind of a minimum requirement. Yes? Correct. So the question is, is about venting at the top. It is just as important. Now, there is going to be more water that's going to drain through gravity uh, through the bottom of the wall, but don't forget capillary action. And there is the potential for the moisture to, to move up the wall. So we do need to leave that air gap at the top of the wall assembly. So imagine if this is our soffit and this is our wall. We want a quarter of an inch between the top of that product and the actual uh, soffit material so that moisture can exit out of it as well. And again, bug screen within that space so that nothing can come back into that wall assembly. Yes? Earlier you said lap siding, just because it's been around, it works without the rain. Correct. So you don't have to necessarily worry about it. Correct. So the question is uh, lap siding, right? So we've talked a lot about rain screen. We, we, we all kind of generally believe it makes sense and it's good. Do we have to do it with a, a lapped product? And the answer is, uh, depending on your, uh, depending on what you're building and where you're building. So for example, in single family, uh, there are no jurisdictional codes or requirements that say a lapped product should be on a rain screen. However, if you moved into a multifamily type building and let's say there was cladding failure, your envelope consultant is probably going to engineer a solution with a rain screen and lap over top of it. Yes. It, correct. In Vancouver, you put rain screen everywhere. Everywhere. Whether it's lap, whether it's flat wall product, doesn't matter. Rain screen is a requirement in every structure in Vancouver, Washington, in Vancouver, BC. Yes. Uh, I've got nine years of hardy panel in the Seattle market that doesn't show uh, a movement to the product. Now, uh, hardy has a lot of uh, advantages. Uh, low maintenance, durable, we're, we're rot resistant, insect resistant. I mean, we're, we're pretty, pretty proven within the marketplace as a very durable, long lasting product, right? We have one big negative and we're thin and we follow that wave of that wall. So when you think about, we call it the hardy wave, 
if you go and drive to a brand new subdivision where the framing went really, really fast, and you'll stand at the corner and you eyeball down that wall, you can see this happening. And a lot of that is just the product, because of its flexibility, right? Uh, it mirrors that wall assembly. So you do need to be sensitive to, if you're doing a reside or remodel, and you have a uh, particular client, you do need to be sensitive to, um, is that going to be a problem? Now with panel, you can get that same ripple effect. You normally don't see it as much because it's panelized and, and it's got a longer uh, uh, length and width. So you normally don't see as much torquing in it from, from stud bay to stud bay. But in lap, you do tend to see a lot more. Um, we'll talk a little bit about an alternative to that, which would be artisan lap, right? So a thicker lap product. And then a reveal panel, which is a 7 sixteenths panel. So, so we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Any other questions on rain screen before I talk about the vertical and horizontal requirements James Hardy has for building these structures? Yes? Um, on the weather resistant, Correct. Uh, so the question is around wrap, right? So it's, it's more around, uh, okay, I want to do a uh, Hardy panel. Uh, I want to understand what wraps Hardy recommends and is Hardy in the rain screen business. Uh, first question is we are in the rain, we are, I'm sorry, we are in the wrap business. We have Hardy wrap. Hardy wrap is a flat wall WRB. So effectively, if anyone buys Tyvek, it would look very similar to Tyvek. Now, it has better perm ratings. It's, uh, it's got more texture to the exterior. So if you're putting a ladder against it, uh, you won't, it won't be as slippery. Uh, but it's a very similar concept of product, flat wall product. Um, and that, again, that's partially just due to our, our research and development trail, what our background is. We primarily produce fiber cement. That's our bread and butter. So that's us working with a, uh, another manufacturer to develop that product. So the question would be, is there a specific product? Um, we have uh, some information we can offer you around uh, what, what we would consider the better part of the market, right? So as you're moving into the better solution, drainage wraps, we could show you what some of those perm ratings look like. Now, in general, there is an ASTM test that says, uh, and, and unfortunately, it's an EFIS test. They used to pour a bunch of water at the top of the wall, see how much, measure the, the bucket of water, pour the bucket down the wall, measure the bucket at the bottom, and see how much water got absorbed into the wall. And the concept was they wanted over 90% to exit the wall. Unfortunately, that 10% caused a lot of damage. We saw that. Uh, but that test, that concept of that test, uh, started to create that concept of the ability for a wrap or some type of WRB to, to exit. And I've got a list of some that uh, not Hardy's tested, but that can show you what those perm ratings look like. So in general, I would say if you're moving towards a rain screen concept, you probably want to have a, a singular wrap to minimize your potential uh, intrusion areas. So with a basic lap installation, we do see a lot of uh, felt paper still going on the wall, three foot at a time, pretty typical. With rain screens, again, what do we typically see? We typically see people moving into synthetic wraps or drain wraps, where it's bigger pieces, less intrusion areas. Again, because you have that opening, right? So the concept is I still want to 
minimize any kind of wind-driven rain or any kind of moisture entering that, that structure. But I do have some resources for that. Yes? How do you, how do you get, uh, how do you do rain screen behind the shingles, the hardy shingles? Uh, there's only really one good way to do that, and that's with shingle panel. Uh, it's not fun and it's not so your, easy. Your product, your hardy shingles, which yep. I put a lot on, mm -hmm. that really it's not, you really can't get this rain screen. Uh, it, it is very challenging. You can do it in a shingle panel format, so our four foot panels. Um, but typically that would be, the shingles install very similarly to a lap, right? So it creates the air gap. So typically, if let's say you had a panel system or you had a flat wall product and then you moved into shingles into a gable, typically that would be protected by the overhangs and usually there's not a rain screen built into it. So it's not uncommon to see on a structure an elevation or a portion of the elevation on a rain screen. The challenge for the architect is now they have to figure out how do I make the wall assembly work so I don't end up with all of these weird different planes where nothing lines up vertically. So, yes? Uh, the question was around failures on open design. Uh, we actually don't see a lot of failures around open design. This climate in Seattle is pretty temperate. I know it seems odd, but compared to Minnesota or Chicago or New York, so we don't have a lot of freeze thaw. So we don't see a lot of failures with an open jointed rain screen. If there is to be failures, a lot of times it's based on the, the WRB. So it's based on that Vapro Shield is a common one you see in an open jointed rain screen. It's based on the installation of that weather barrier is what we typically see. Um, you don't tend to see a lot of damaging occur, right? And the ease of replacement is pretty easy. If I have a panel without a bunch of th stuff around it, very easy for me to break it off the wall or unscrew it off the wall and replace it. So we don't see a lot of damage. The challenge is, is it becomes very high maintenance for the end user, right? So Mrs. Smith, Mr. Jones, they got to clean it out if there's debris in there. Um, in certain areas, let's say you had an open joint rain screen in Chelan and you had a bunch of debris that got in the wall, guess what? That could catch on fire, right? So, so it adds other concerns into the, into the, into the uh, design process. But in terms of failures, we don't see a lot of failures of products on open jointed rain screens. Uh, they typically are more expensive. The product itself, so no hardy product is allowed on an open rain screen. Now that being said, if you did it tomorrow or did it last week, that doesn't mean, you know, oh my goodness, it's gonna fall off the wall because unfortunately or fortunately, it doesn't. But it does mean if something ever happened to that product, it isn't, it isn't approved uh, warranty or it isn't approved installation methodology from us. So, so we would deter from an open rain screen. I've got a question. Is Hardy's recommendations uh, for the WRB rain screen, good, better, best, uh, change depending on whether or not you comply with or OSP, basically because of the lack of adhesion that's due with uh, OSP not being able to dry out? So the question was around uh, the shear product, uh, sheathing, if it's OSB, CDX, Depending on what our sheathing material is, do we have a change in our recommendation on our WRB? And the answer would be no. So the answer would be an approved WRB that meets building code. If you look in the questions and answers, there's a question on, um, on uh, wraps and, and WRBs. And I've listed the ASTM requirement for us, so you can look at that and see if, uh, if it meets it. But we specifically do not. So in general, in general, Hardy focuses on the exterior cladding portion of the wall assembly, right? 
it's only in the last few years that we've really even got engaged and involved in really promoting and recommending the usage of a rain screen. So four years ago, uh, we wouldn't really have an answer to say we recommend or we don't recommend. Now we've done the studies, we've spent time with, with uh, building envelope cons consultants. We believe and we do recommend the idea of a rain screen, but we don't have specific requirements on what is the WRB or what is the furring product or what is the product to make that 3 8 inch gap. Yes? Question was on uh, primed edges on panels, right? So if I have a panel and I modulate it down, I cut it to fit whatever dimension, line up with the horizontals on the windows or something like that, do I need to prime or, or, or do they have to be factory edges? Now in general, we say use factory edges where and when you can, right? And uh, anywhere that isn't factory edged or isn't protected, so if you use a piece of metal and it covers over that edge, it's protected, it's not necessarily required to be uh, primed or, or, or sealed, if you will. If you had an area which tends to happen on every modern, uh, every traditional lap house, where the lap piece over the header of the window, window has to be notched, and we, we recommend a quarter of an inch air gap, that piece should be primed. That's the place that we see on every house with a lap install almost everywhere. That's, that's the one place that we see needing priming. Now, if you have a butt joint application and they're factory edge, factory edge, you don't need to do anything. If one of them is a primed edge and you're going to caulk it, you're okay because the caulk is helping to protect it. But if you have a uh, moderate contact butt joint without any caulking, we would say make sure that that edge is primed or field uh, or uh, factory edge. Yes? Do you have a primer? Uh, we don't. We don't. It's something that we look at and we think about, but we don't. So our recommendation is the local guys are buy a rattle can of a primer and have the guy who cuts it sprayed on. And it's a, it's a very inexpensive and a very easy process. The key is just getting the cut guy to do it as opposed to, oh, the rattle can's in the truck or the rattle can's up the wall. And whoever cuts it, he's got it in his bag, he sprays it, and you go on with your day. Yes? I'm going to resort to one of my colleagues here. The question was ventilation between floors, every two floors? Well, there's actually there's no requirement from The recommendation is two. The, the recommendation is more around having a water break. Okay. Uh, I got it. I That's what I did. Yeah. So, so uh, the question was around uh, I'm building a five-story building. How often do I have to allow for the water to exit that assembly? And uh, the building practice concept or the Again, not hardy driven, but traditionally it's every two stories. So on a single family house, from floor one to floor two, you probably don't have to have a horizontal break. But as you move into a full story, five story building, you're probably going to have one or two breaks every two floors. And that's a through wall break that allows any moisture within those two floors to come down and exit out and not go all the way down four stories. So, yes? Uh, question was around, do I, do I, could I, should I uh, pre-paint? Is there an advantage? And should I or do I have to uh, seal or paint the back? And the question, the answer is um, 
Hardy finishes five sides of the product. We don't finish the back of our product. The reason we don't finish our, the back of our product is it, is it is fiber cement. And just like brick and just like cement, it can have, um, it can uh, efflorescence. And if it efflorescence, we want it to exit the back of the board. So efflorescence is a natural calcium process in curing that can create a white milky effect on the face of cement and brick. You see it normally on brick buildings. Um, if it happens on fiber cement, which it can because we're cement, we want it to go through the back. So we've created a path of least resistance. If we sealed all five or all six sides of our board, then it would find the easiest path, which could be the face. And all of a sudden you have these white milky spots on your face. So the, the answer would be no need for back priming, no need for back sealing. We don't recommend it. We think it's, uh, it's an extra expense that's not required. We don't finish it because we know if there's any issues, we want the water to exit through the back end of the product. Uh, Pre-finishing would save you uh, ease of getting on the wall. And a lot of times, depending on the design, if you want a contrast of metal to panel, sometimes you have to paint before. Sometimes you might want to just tape off the metal and paint. So, so no need for back priming and sealing. Yes? Uh, we don't have a recommendation. We see a mix. We see a mix. So we do see some people using like marine grade. We see some people using pressure treated. Uh, but a lot of times it's just 3 8 inch plywood. So I'll move on to the next step here, uh, which is around what are the requirements. So uh, we all have hung lap, probably. Understand the basic installation of lap. Uh, there's a couple of things that you really got to focus in on with panel. And it's the vertical treatments and the horizontal treatments. So the bottom of page four is the vertical and the horizontal treatments. We have four allowable options that meet our installation requirements for vertical treatments, right? And you can see on the bottom of that page, the first one, what we call moderate contact. So that's panel to panel. That's the pieces basically touching. Second option would be uh, an eighth of an inch gap and caulk. Third option would be something over top of the two panels, probably like a batten, so you get a board and batten look. And then the fourth option is a piece of metal. Those are the four options. So you'll notice there's no open jointed option. We don't allow for you to create a half an inch air gap. Something has to be there to basically protect the edges. And again, it closes the ability for moisture to just drive right through. So those are the four options. Now, what do we see most commonly? Uh, we hardly ever see caulking because it's very challenging on an eight foot panel to get a really nice bead of caulk eight feet long. So we don't normally see that, especially in the middle of a wall, right? If we got a great guy that does really good caulking. He tends to do that at the corners where we already have a shadow line between trim and, uh, and, uh, and the lap. It's a very different animal when you have to go through and caulk a bunch of, uh, a bunch of verticals on, uh, on a panel install. So we don't see that very often. Board and batten's not very common in this market. We do see it here and there as accents, but we don't see a lot of panels with battens over top of it. What we tend to see is, is metal, right? So there are some options on different metals, which we'll look at in a moment. Uh, but, but I wanted to get into horizontals. Uh, horizontals are very straightforward. Every horizontal needs a piece of flashing. It's that simple. So if you have a three-foot piece of hardy panel and another three-foot piece of hardy panel, you need something over top of that first piece of hardy panel. You need something. 
needs to be a piece of metal. Uh, you need to have something there. Typically, it's a piece of Z metal is what we see most commonly. There are some, uh, some other profiles of horizontals, but the most common everyday solution is a piece of panel with a basic Z metal that sits on top, a quarter of an inch air gap, and then the next product above it, whether it's panel or lap or wood or whatever that may be. So one, one major requirement around horizontals, basic Z metal, and four options on the verticals. So that takes us to metals. So I've got some samples over there of some Tamlin metals if you want to see some of the differences. But I put together kind of a, just a little bit of a, what we general, generally see on the top of page five. The first one is the horizontal. As I mentioned, there's basically one option. It's a Z metal, very common, most typical option that you see. The second row shows some of the verticals. So you'll see if you wanted to create a, a, a look of a channel between those verticals, that top piece could give you that half of an inch vertical gap. You could see the next one's kind of a T-bar. So again, depending on the aesthetic. Uh, I also included the next piece, which is it's basically what we call a J vertical. So imagine if you're doing a panel and this is a window, you need something to protect. This piece slides over top of the panel and hits against the window flange. If you don't have trims or if you have trims, it would butt against your trim. Questions on... Uh, oh, I'm sorry, and then the last piece is the corners, right? And I showed the top one's an inside corner, just as an example. There's a lot of corner options and a few vertical options, but, uh, but there's not 100. Uh, you'll see the X, what we call the X corner, that's the most common one we see in the market, is the middle one. And then the bottom corner is just a 90 degree uh, exterior corner. Questions on metals? I'm sure there's questions on how do I put them on, how do I connect them, right? Lots of those questions. Uh, I don't have time for all of those. I will field a lot of those uh, afterwards on the specifics. What I can tell you is uh, we build fiber cement. We tell you how to hang fiber cement. You've got to go and talk to Tamlin. You've got to talk to um, Fry Reglet to, to, to understand their installation. What do we typically see and what do we typically know? They recommend stainless fasteners from metal to metal. So they recommend stainless. We typically see galvanized being shot through the metals to hold them on the wall. Now remember, the metal is not an attachment piece. That metal is not holding the hardy panel on the wall. The nails or screws in the hardy panel are holding it to the wall. So the metal is just an ancillary piece to protect it. It doesn't have a fastening pattern. It doesn't say you've got to nail it every six inches or hit every stud or anything like that. Uh, they don't say you can staple it. They don't say you should nail it. They say when using fasteners, stainless fasteners. It's pretty open-ended. Um, and. Uh, it's a bit of a concern, but, but that's, that's kind of how it's set up. Correct. So when, uh, the question was around basically the incorporation of the metals. What metal do I use when and where, kind of the process of how do I intersect the metals? Is that, is that the question? Correct. So the question is, is, do I create, if I take my vertical and I run it into a horizontal, do I create an issue of, uh, of, of creating kind of a guttering effect where I'm, I'm, I'm intersecting the two? The typical installation methodology on a panel uh, is just like if you were doing brick. You start in one corner, you modulate your way across the wall. So you've got your uh, corner piece on, you put your first panel in, right? And then you work your way horizontally across the wall. So your horizontals are the ones that are going to catch the most visual attention. And you want the verticals to drop onto the horizontal. The horizontal typically has a, well, I don't know what that angle is, but it typically has an angle that uh, rakes off the wall that will help shed the water off. 
So typically, you start in one corner, you modulate your way, panel, metal, panel, metal, and then your horizontals typically, typically are the ones that span the length of the building as much as possible. Yes? So what I've been seeing is that in your vertical column, the top piece actually running horizontally <coughs> under the panels. I see that everywhere. Yes, that would be non-acceptable. That's a gutter, right? So, so if you take the vertical piece and you turn it on edge, right, and it creates basically this effect, it, it creates a channeling effect, and then the panel sits in it, well, guess what happens? The water sits in it. So that is not an acceptable installation for us. Um, uh, we do see it sometimes. Uh, if we see it on a job site, we call out the GC, the architect, the cider, and say, hey, 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 this doesn't meet our installation guidelines. If water sits in that trough, that gutter, and soaks up and freezes and thaws in the panel, it can cause problems with the panel. And that wouldn't be Hardy's responsibility. That would be the cider or the GC or the architect's responsibility. So we do see that. Um, that's part of the reason why I added this piece on so, and tried to keep it in the vertical column. But we do see metals being used incorrectly quite a bit. Tamlin, again, I, I don't, uh, they're not a partner of ours or anything, but Tamlin has a really good website. And they have a lot of images uh, and it's very well laid out. So if you have questions on what are my vertical pieces, what are my horizontal pieces, I'd refer you to the Tamlin website. They, they have really good resource there. And again, it is a local product, i.e. You know, Dunstock's a bunch of them here. I know you don't see them. If you walk into Latona, you don't see them. They got them stashed in the back, but they got anodized chem film. I mean, they, they got, whether, you, whether you're going to paint it or whether you want the anodized look, they, they have a lot of them here on the ground. Any other questions on metal? Yes. The question was, do we recommend screws or nails due to nail pops? Typically what we see is nails. Nails are the most common. Nails are not necessarily preferred or recommended, but it is the most common one that we see. Now, any structure settles the most within the first seven years, so there is a potential for nail pops. Um, screws would eliminate that concern, but most of the drive of this design is around flat, clean, simple. And the nails give you that aesthetic, where the screws tend to, to most people, give you a look of uh, um, not as clean and not as simple of an aesthetic. So it's kind of a balance. I want really simple, really clean. I'm going to put nails on it. You're probably better off with a screw, but most people nail it on. So that leads us to kind of the, the one of the products that I wanted to show today, and this is the last piece of our discussion, which is this is uh, what we call Reveal Panel. Now we have Reveal 1 and Reveal 2.0. I apologize for the name. That's what it is. It's Reveal 2.0. The concept behind this is we just talked about rain screens. We just talked about uh, panels and different metals and and what do you recommend here and what do you recommend there? And, uh, and in the past, it's been a bit of an ad hoc. You get the hardy panel, you figure out the metal, you decide on your WRB, you've created that system. This is a bit of a system made by hardy. So the concept behind this is it is a fiber cement panel, similar in terms of size and general dimension to our 5 16 hardy panel, but it's 7 16 So it's an eighth of an inch thicker. So somebody asked earlier about how do I stop some of the hardy wave? This will lay flatter on the wall because it's thicker. Just like if I took a piece of beveled cedar, the beveled cedar is going to lay flatter on the wall. It's not going to mirror the stud bays as much as a thinner product. That's the same concept behind this. Now one of the other things to think about uh, for the math people in the room is 
we said you're fasten every 16 inches, right? So do the math. If I fasten every 16 inches, my 4 by 8 sheet of Hardy, right, is exactly 4 by 8. When I get to my studs, what do I do? How do I keep the metal on the stud? A lot of people have to do some ripping and cutting to make all of that work out. Meaning, how do I get a 4 by 8 to line up on every 16 with this metal that gaps me every quarter of an inch, depending on what the vertical separation is. So what we've done is we said, you know what? We're going to make a panel that's a half an inch smaller in both dimensions. So we call this a nominal 4 by 8. It's not 4 by 8. It's half an inch shorter in the length and the width. So when you add the metals that we provide, it regulates out to even increments. So the concept is, now you're not, you don't have to cut. We've now given you a metal product. We've given you a fastener product, a thicker product. We're kind of packaging it all as one component. So you don't have to worry about who's metal, what screw, all of that. Now the other major advantage is the fastening application with this product as opposed to 5 sixteenths. Um, does anyone know uh, approximately how many fasteners, and we'll call them nails, how many two inch uh, nails would, would be required to hold a four by eight to the wall and siders are not allowed? Because I know you guys know that. Anybody else know roughly how many nails do you think? 24, I heard. Who else? Just a guess. It's higher than 24. 124? 40? Okay. 48? Okay. 64 is the approximate number. Now, it depends on the height of the building. It depends on the, the wind speed against that building. There's a lot of uh, factors that affect how many nails go into it. But think about shear. If I asked any one of you, what's the nailing pattern for shear in general, you guys all know on whatever structure you're working on, what's that nailing pattern? Hardy has a nailing pattern just as well. And it's again, it's not something that we developed and said this is what we want to do. It has to do with the ability to hold that product to the wall without injuring or falling off or hurting somebody. Somebody said to me earlier, hey man, I picked up those 4 by 10s those things weigh 100 pounds. Imagine a 100 pound panel you know, three stories in the air that doesn't have enough nails and the wind gets in it and pulls it down and it falls on top of somebody. So we have a nailing pattern. Again, NER405 will, will tell you based on your building and your structure, but the general thinking is you need to have nails on the verticals, nails in the field based on the building type you're building, okay? Now everyone's going, okay, well, what am I, I build a single family house, what is it? In general, the, the thinking is eight and 12. 8 inches on verticals, 12 inches in the field. You do the math on a 4 by 8 sheet, that gets you to about 64 nails on a basic hardy panel. This product, because it's thicker and because of the fasteners, this is approximately 21 fasteners to hold this on the wall. The fastener options for reveal would be either a bugle-headed screw like you see in this upper piece, or we also have a, what we call a hidden fastener or concealed fastener. You pre-drill. You countersink the fastener. It's a two-part epoxy that's then put on and lightly sanded to create a, a smooth, flat finish with no visible fastener. And there's 21 in general on a panel as opposed to 64. So thicker panel, flatter to the wall, built-in screw options by Hardy, metals that already come in. And then the last big one is uh, in Reveal 2.0, as you look at this metal, 
what's, what, what's one of the things that you see that deviates aside from the screw, because I already mentioned you know, the screw, that deviates from your normal metals that we just talked about? Correct. The, question, the answer was vertical seam. And the answer is there is a vertical seam. The difference is this vertical doesn't overlap the face of the board. So if you look at a traditional vertical that we just talked about, those would have a flange that would over, cover over the face of the board. The horizontals typically don't have a massive overhang, but they do tend to have a, a little bit of a rake to them. In the Reveal 2.0 system, it's a what we call a lower profile metal. So you can get that look of basically three exposed edges as opposed to having the metal covering over top of it. Now, I know that's kind of a little bit challenging to see when I have the one and not the other next to me. So I've got some of the metals over here so I can show you kind of what Reveal 2 metal would look like versus a normal horizontal or normal vertical. But the major difference is you don't have the, the, the metals covering over top of the faces. Yes? So how much heavier is the 7.16? This 4x8, the question was the weight. The 4x8, because it only comes in a 4x8, a nominal 4x8, the Reveal panel weighs about the same as a 4x10 Hardy panel which is uh, 103 pounds, I believe it is. And a, and a Hardy panel that's 516? Uh, typical Hardy panel weight is about 2.4 pounds per square foot times uh, 32, 60-some pounds, give or take. So 60 to 100. We kind of call, uh, call it the Hardy gym membership. You look at these guys, they're pretty built. They don't have to go to the gym like I do uh, because they're lifting this stuff all day long. <laughs> so uh, that, that kind of concludes my, uh, my little presentation. I hope it helped at least look at some of the design trends. We've got a bunch of samples. Any questions that you don't feel you got answers to, we're here as resources. Um, I'd like to thank Dunlumber and thank Jim for letting us be here. And, and I'd like to thank you guys for buying the product and, and continuing to support, uh, support our business. And, like I said, don't hesitate. If you have questions, our phone numbers and emails are in the back. We'll be here. So come and say hi or tell us what you need. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jim. This was a presentation of Dunlumber in Seattle. For more content or if we can help you with your next project, visit us online at dunlumber.com.